You're listening to the second and final part of Unexplained, Season 7, Episode 3, Under Black Water. One late December night in 1938, at the mouth of Shalumna Bay, just off the coast of South Africa, Captain Hendrik Goosen smokes a cigarette on the bridge of his fishing trawler, the Narine. Reflections from the stars of southern constellations sparkle on the calm ocean waters as he watches the crew haul in the ship's nets. Just then, his eye is momentarily caught by the sudden appearance of an oddly bluish-coloured fin amid the thrashing of fish and shark caught in the nets. But with so much work to be done, the captain thinks little more of it as he finishes off his cigarette and heads down to help his men on the deck. The next morning, Marjorie Courtney Latimer, a curator of natural history at a small museum in the port town of East London on South Africa's Eastern Cape, receives a phone call. A local fishing trawler manager wants to know if she's interested in taking a look at a strange fish that has just been brought in. An hour or so later, she was stood on the deck of the Narine, scouring the mound of dead fish and sharks until she spots it, an unusual bluey-grey fin poking out of one of the piles. About one and a half metres long, the fish was heavily scaled, its fins rough and stocky, almost limb-like. One fisher, standing nearby, tells Courtney Latimer that in more than 30 years of fishing around the world, he's never seen anything like it. In fact, Nobody was thought to have ever seen anything like it, since it was supposed to have gone extinct 66 million years ago. The fish was a coelacanth. All that had been found of them prior to then were fossils dating from 400 to 66 million years ago, at which point they were assumed to have gone extinct with the dinosaurs. Finding a living one was like finding a Tyrannosaurus rex, wandering around your garden. It was a rare instance of what is sometimes called a Lazarus taxon, meaning a taxonomic group that disappeared from the fossil record only to mysteriously reappear again. Then in 1952, a second was found near the Comoros Islands just to the east of Mozambique in Africa. And soon, Some began to wonder if there were any other unknown species still out there, waiting to be discovered in the deep waters of the world's lonelier corners, lurking under the nose of modern civilization. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. In 1957, Author Constance White published the book More Than a Legend, The Story of the Loch Ness Monster. It spoke to the zeitgeist of the emerging times with its renewed fascination in the possible existence of cryptid creatures fueled by the finding of the second living coelacanth. Extant monster sightings were also now being reported. Bigfoot stories were emerging from America and tales of the Yeti emerged from the Himalayas. In her book, 
Constance White catalogued around 80 sightings of the apparent Loch Ness Monster from multiple witnesses, some corroborated by other observers who'd apparently seen the same thing simultaneously from nearby locations. Flat, calm water and hot days were the most favourable conditions, with hot spots for sightings tending to be where rivers ran into the loch. Temple Pier, on the north side of Urquhart Bay, was the scene of hundreds of reports, while Alexander Ross, the former pier master there, claimed to have seen the creature at least 15 times himself. On the 14th of July, 1951, local woodsman Lachlan Stewart was clearing trees 100 feet above the shore when he claimed to have spotted a humped object moving fast up the loch. The picture he got with his box camera showed three angular blackish humps, each about five foot long and three feet out of the water. A long neck with a sheep-sized head was then said to have appeared momentarily before it veered away with much splashing. Constance White took a stab at creating a composite picture of so-called Nessie from the multitude of reports and photographs describing the creature as being anywhere from 20 to 50 feet long, with a bulky body, a dark elephant-like skin, up to seven humps, a long snake-like neck, a small flat head which had two horn-like structures, a long blunt-ended tail, two pairs of powerful flippers, and the ability to swim at up to 30 miles per hour. Many people thought it resembled a plesiosaur, mostly on account of the famed surgeon's photo, as documented in the first part of this episode. White postulated that the creature had possibly got into the lock during the melting of the last ice age. The 1950s were a time when most people got their entertainment from the radio and books. Television was a luxury, available to only a few but with the dawning of the 1960s, small black and white television sets started appearing in more and more homes. Natural history was a popular topic for programming. In these changing times, theories about the Loch Ness Monster, for those who gave credence to the sightings, began to diverge into two distinct camps. One that believed the creature was some kind of supernatural phenomenon, and the other who preferred to take a more scientific approach. It was the start of the Easter weekend in April 1960 when Tim Dinsdale arrived at Loch Ness. Trained as an aeronautical engineer but bored in his job at Heathrow Airport, Dinsdale was excited to be on holiday pursuing his true passion, searching for the Loch Ness Monster. He spent his days driving along the shore road with a Bolex cine camera loaded with 16mm black and white film, but saw nothing out of the ordinary. That was until the last day of his week-long trip. It was sometime around 8.30am when Dinsdale spotted a humped object around 1,300 yards from the shore. Dinsdale filmed the object in bursts, tracking it for about four minutes 
as it carved a zigzag course across the lock's surface before it disappeared into a patch of dark water. A short time later, Dinsdale screened the film for a gathering of top zoologists at London Zoo, converting sceptics into believers in the process. Among them was a man named Peter Scott. Scott was the son of famed explorer Robert Falcon Scott, who died in Antarctica in 1912 during a failed expedition to become the first person to reach the South Pole. At the time, Peter Scott was a respected ornithologist and conservationist who would go on to help establish the Worldwide Fund for Nature, among other notable achievements. In 1960, he was perhaps best known for presenting the BBC's natural history show called Look. In June, a still from Tim Dinsdale's film was published in the British Daily Mail newspaper, while Dinsdale also appeared on BBC News, and soon after, he was introduced to Peter Scott. Having been impressed by Dinsdale, Scott, who was well known to the royal family, visited the Queen and assured her that Dinsdale was onto something. The hunt for Nessie was back on. One zoologist in particular decided to go all out for direct proof of Nessie's existence. Retired senior zoologist at London's Natural History Museum, Dr. Morris Burton, knew that Nessie could not be a plesiosaur. According to him, even if some of these cold-blooded creatures had somehow survived the mass dinosaur extinctions 66 million years ago, they would not survive in Loch Ness's chilly waters. As a first step, Burton brought together a team of scientists who spent two weeks on the lock in a dinghy. They measured the distances over which eyewitness reports had been made to test whether human visual acuity could match the details relayed. Their analysis of the data revealed that many of the reports were simply beyond the realms of physical possibility. Next, Burton and his team decided to try something altogether more practical. In previous zoological hunting trips off the coast of Cornwall in the southwest of England, they'd found that dragging a net containing rotting fish guts seasoned liberally with pilchard oil was wonderfully effective at attracting sharks. How could such a treat, they thought, fail to bring Nessie up from the depths? Despite numerous efforts, however, the supposed monster refused to take the bait. Burton concluded that in the most part, Nessie was nothing more than rafts of decaying vegetation seen floating on the surface of the loch, but it did little to deter the true believers. In July 1962, David James, a former Navy man turned politician, launched an expedition for which he enlisted Lieutenant Colonel H.G. Hassler, a hero of British World War II naval operations. The campaign began in true military style with a scouting expedition. The lock was swept from end to end with a sonar curtain using echolocation that spanned its width and plumbed its full depths. Three objects, too big to be large fish, were discovered under the water. And so, on October 13th, 
the full assault began. Urquhart Bay, located two-thirds of the way up on the loch's northern shore, was selected as the key point of interest. There, David James and an 18-strong team set up a number of searchlights to rove across the bay after dark. When night descended, the lights were switched on and swept across the black water as the team kept watch for any sign of unusual activity. Then, on James's signal, sticks of gelignite were lit and dropped into the water, and moments later they exploded, sending huge plumes of water shooting into the air, the idea being to try and scare anything lurking down there up to the surface. The test was repeated for a number of days, with only a few dead fish and glimpses of familiar, terrified living ones to show for it. But then, on October 19th, something else was spotted. As the blast from another round of gelignite rang out, one of the search teams spotted a vast shoal of salmon thrashing about on the water's surface about 200 yards from Temple Pier on the northern side of the bay, and right behind them was a long, indeterminate shape, roughly 10 feet in length, that appeared to be chasing them. This moment was captured on film by former naval seaman John Luff. In all his years at sea, Luff said he'd never seen anything like it. The Royal Air Force's own Central Reconnaissance Establishment examined Luff's footage frame by frame, concluding that it showed about eight feet of something dark and glistening, which was not a wave effect, but rather something with solidity. After also examining the evidence, a panel comprised of members of the UK's Royal Society, picked by zoologist Peter Scott, also concluded that there was indeed something real there that would require more rigorous study. By then, Scott had also spent some time actively searching for the creature. In 1963, he led three gliders in survey flights over the loch, but the pilots failed to spot anything. The same year, in the summer, David James and his retired military helpers returned to the loch for a second time, hoping to collect irrefutable proof of Nessie's existence. This time, the team mounted two 35mm cameras on opposite sides of the loch. The night before their mission was due to start, a schoolteacher reported a convincing Nessie sighting, not far from Urquhart Castle, where the team were based. It seemed like a good omen, but no sooner had the cameras been started up, a mist crept across the loch, limiting visibility to a hundred yards. Over the next six months, there were just 15 clear days in which David James and his team captured nothing of note. And for the best part of a decade, no further credible sightings were reported. One sunny day in June, 1972, wealthy American lawyer and inventor Robert Rines was enjoying tea and scones with his friends Winifred and Basil Carey at their home overlooking Urquhart Bay. The china cups and saucers clinked daintily on the terrace 
as Winifred poured out the tea, when suddenly there was a disturbance in the water about half a mile offshore. Basil hurried to fetch his brass telescope, through which they all in turn observed a darkish hump, about twenty feet long, gliding through the water. The American Robert Rhines was transfixed. From that day on, he became obsessed with the possibility of the Loch Ness Monster. The following year, he returned to the loch, this time with $100,000 of equipment, which included two fully stocked vessels, a 16mm underwater camera, and most crucially, a sonar unit, which would alert the team if a large object passed in front of the camera lens. Rhines had the equipment positioned on an underwater ridge just off Temple Pier, where frequent sightings of Nessie had been reported, while his two vessels, the Nan and the Narwhal, hunted for the creature on the surface. At 1.30am on August 8th, 1973, the waters were deathly still as Peter Davis, captain of the Narwhal, fought to stay awake on the night watch. Ten minutes later, he was jolted from semi-sleep when the water's surface began to boil with turbulence. Shining his torch over the side, Davis could just make out the thrashing and leaping bodies of a large run of salmon dashing past the boat. Davis rushed to the bridge and checked the sonar. The fish appeared as pinpoints, rapidly turning into flashing streaks as they sped away like a storm of shooting stars. Then something else, much larger and denser, began to take form. Davis felt a surge of excitement at the sheer size of it. The excitement soon turned to fear, however, when he climbed into the narwhal's small tender boat to alert the crew of the Nan, who controlled the underwater camera, with the prospect of a very large animal moving about in the water just 30 feet below him. With trembling hands, he cast off and began to row. Before long, he'd made it the 40 metres across to the Nan, and the cameras were promptly turned on. Later that morning, the film was recovered and sent to New York to be developed. Meanwhile, Rhines and his team were left to pour over the sonar traces, concluding that the large, dense object was an aquatic animal, estimated to be between 20 to 30 feet long, with appendages as much as 10 feet long. When the photos came back from New York, Robert Rhines was disappointed to find that almost 2,000 frames of the developed footage showed nothing but blackness. But then, on four of the frames, was the hazy outline of something large and solid. Encouraged by the images, Rhines had the frames sent to a contact who worked at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California. There, they ran the images through the same computerized enhancement that NASA used on images from space missions. The result was four high-definition black-and-white images which seemed to show the clear outline of a massive object under the water. Rhines and his team were most excited by the fourth image, 
which appeared to show a diamond-shaped mottled thing with a central rib. Estimated to be six feet long and two feet across, it looked like a giant flipper, unlike that of any known living aquatic animal. With this sensational piece of new evidence to hand, Rhines had the images published in the American news magazine Time and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's in-house journal, Technology Review. In 1975, Rhines met naturalist Peter Scott, by which time he'd collected even more images of the supposed creature. One frame depicted a long, slender structure curving up from a bulbous shape which had two angular, flipper-like protuberances. A second showed a seemingly organic mass pockmarked with deep shadows with two peculiar stalk-like projections. For an ecstatic Rhines, the first image was clearly the creature's torso and the second was the creature's face looking straight at the camera. The deepest pool of shadow Apparently, it's open mouth. Peter Scott was intrigued, but soon afterwards, five senior scientists from the Natural History Museum in London, including experts in zoology, fish, paleontology and fossil reptiles, concluded there was nothing to suggest there really was an unknown giant animal in the photographs. The apparent torso, they said, was more likely to be a large log or a swarm of midgy lava appearing as a solid mass, while the apparent image of the creature's head was more likely that of a dead horse. By then, Peter Scott had become the president of the World Wildlife Fund. Despite the debunking of the so-called Nessie evidence by most in mainstream science, Scott was so convinced the creature existed that he proposed the WWF adopt Nessie as a real creature, and even use it as their new logo. After all, if it were real, it would prove to be a prime example of a previously undiscovered species poised on the brink of extinction, the perfect emblem for endangered animals across the globe. Scott also proposed a scientific name for it, Nessiteris rhombopteryx. Nessie from Loch Ness, Terus meaning marvel, rhombo meaning diamond shape, and pteryx meaning wing or fin. A paper by Scott and Rhines describing the creature was even published by the journal Nature. Within months, however, Rhines' images reached a wider audience and a strong consensus emerged among the experts that his creature was nothing more than a collection of inanimate objects. Nature was eventually forced to publish a retraction. In May 1977, the self-described wizard, psychic magician and monster watcher, Anthony Doc Shields, arrived at Loch Ness with members of a group known as Psychic Seven International. Together they stripped off their clothes and stood by the loch, chanting for the apparent monster to reveal itself. Though nothing happened, a short time later, as they trudged back to their cars, Shields and some other members of the group 
reportedly saw three humps gliding through the water towards Fort Augustus at the southern end of the lock. Shields had a reputation for being a prankster and would later create a series of hoax photographs of the Loch Ness Monster. He insisted, however, that this first sighting was genuine. As an advocate of the theory that the monster was some kind of supernatural entity, inadvertently brought to the lock by Alistair Crowley's unfinished occult ritual back in 1899. It came as little surprise to him that soon after his first apparent sighting, he and his family had a run of bad luck. Shields himself was set upon by a mob while in Plymouth, where his beard was later somehow accidentally set on fire. One daughter was thrown off a horse, while the other was stricken with abdominal pains, and his son was involved in a motorbike crash. Soon after, perhaps partially due to Shields' hoax photographs, interest in the Loch Ness Monster began to wane once again. Then, in the mid-1990s, the apparent monster's existence was struck another giant blow when a man called Morris Chambers died Morris Chambers had been a good friend of Marmaduke Weatherall, actor and big game hunter, hired by the Daily Mail back in 1934 to hunt Nessie. He'd even accompanied Weatherall on that trip, where the hunter not only failed to find the monster, but presented fake footprints of the creature. After Morris Chambers' death, his personal papers came to light, they contained a stunning revelation about the most famous Nessie image of all, the so-called surgeon's photograph from 1934. As it transpired, according to Morris Chambers' papers, Marmaduke Weatherall had been badly hurt by the ridicule and humiliation he suffered at the hands of the Daily Mail in the wake of his flimsy efforts to convince the world he'd found evidence of the Loch Ness monster and he wanted revenge. At some point in 1933, Marmaduke Weatherall persuaded his stepson, Christian Sperling, who happened to be a sculptor, to help him construct a believable model of the monster. More than happy to play along, Sperling first bought a toy submarine. Then, after fashioning a long-necked beast out of putty, he placed it on top of the sub, so that its head and neck protruded 30 centimetres above the water. Weatherall then placed the model in a quiet cove and photographed it from a convincing distance. For the last step in the ruse, Weatherall then passed the fake photos to a surgeon friend of his, Robert Kenneth Wilson. Knowing that Wilson's status as a physician would lend credibility to the story, a keen practical joker himself, Wilson agreed to act as the hoax's respectable but anonymous frontman. The rest was history, and all the men had been prepared to take their secret to the grave. Were it not for the discovery of Chambers' papers, the truth about the pictures might have forever remained unknown.
A few years after the truth about the surgeon's photo came to light, 21st century science would deliver a seemingly final crushing blow to the existence of Nessie. The rapidly evolving techniques of DNA analysis now means that unknown creatures can be identified by more than just blood and bones. In the early 2000s, Brian Sykes, a professor of human genetics at Oxford University, found a way to extract and analyse DNA from hair samples, which he applied to alleged Bigfoot and Yeti hair collected across North America and Asia. The DNA evidence showed only wild and domestic animals already well known and local to the sites where the hair samples had been found. In 2019, genetics professor Neil Gemmel from New Zealand's University of Otago announced the results of genetically profiling 250 water samples taken from the edges, centre and very depths of Loch Ness. His team's analysis of this so-called environmental DNA showed all the fish and other freshwater species that you'd expect to find there, along with the DNA from familiar land-based animals that lived around the loch. There was no evidence of an unknown species, or a giant sturgeon, the most often quoted, likely cause of Loch Ness monster reports. But what the team did find was eel DNA in abundance. To date, the largest eel ever found measured no more than 10 feet long, but in Professor Gemmel's conclusions, he stated, we can't discount the possibility that there may be giant eels in Loch Ness, adding, as a geneticist, I think about mutations and natural variation a lot, and it seems not impossible that something could grow to an unusual size. Tantalizingly, Gemmel made one final remark. Given the vast volume of water in Loch Ness, and that environmental DNA signals in water dissipate quickly, there remains the possibility there is something present that we did not detect. Nonetheless, sightings of the Loch Ness monster continue. As recently as June 17, 2023, a French pharmacist from Lyon, holidaying by Loch Ness, photographed what looked like a mysterious, long, shadowy shape moving through the water. What continues to cause such sightings remains unexplained. This episode was written by Diane Hope and produced by Richard McLean-Smith. Unexplained is an AV Club Productions podcast created by Richard McLean-Smith. All other elements of the podcast, including the music, are also produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Unexplained, the book and audiobook, with stories never before featured on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones and other bookstores. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can find out more at unexplainedpodcast.com and reach us online through Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.